Well, you know, I'd like to go into things with my eyeballs wide open. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight before and, you know, got kind of surprised. You know, cold cock, that's not very fun. So at least we know what we're going into, and we know who's standing behind us, in front of us, in us, all around us, and above us. Amen? I think we got, uh, we got this one. Now, we got another sermon coming. Yeah. So you bring it on. Thanks. Excuse me. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Dennis Nagy back there is like, hey, you better make this one good. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm like, Dennis, like, you know, I'm tired too. So I, I took some coffee so I wouldn't fall asleep while I was talking. Um, I've, done, I've done that before, I think. I don't know. Um, yeah, so so we, we, we had a we had a fun conversation uh, this morning. Uh, you know, collapse of the world, financial systems. You know, fun stuff. Um, you know, the the digital dollar. And, and one of the things I forgot to mention. Um, how, how many of you know besides Elliot uh, what a Carrington event is? What's that? Carrington event. Okay, so I I forgot the day. I think it was September first and second, eighteen fifty nine. There was a massive. Uh, coronal mass ejection from the sun, uh, barreled its way through space, hit Earth, and there were there were uh, auroras all the way down to the equator, down into Colombia, okay, Northern Lights. And what what happened was is that the uh, the, the telegraph system got fried because that was all the electricity that they had. Uh, people got shocked, uh, you know, really seriously hurt, and a lot of the electrical uh, systems, the telegraph systems, were. Um, uh, completely, completely toast. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was so much electricity in the wires that even after they cut the power, they were still, some of them were still able to send telegraphs without the power being connected to them. Um, I say that because, you know, those types of things happen. Imagine if all your money was digital, it was on the cloud, and then the cloud vanished. <laughs> and, and if you think these things are like rare, there was a Carrington event that happened like uh, 2012. Okay, I remember that because that was when the Mayans said everything was, was going to you know, explode and die. Um, and there was, there was a coronal mass ejection that happened, a Carrington level event that happened and it missed the Earth by nine days. So the Mayans were just a little bit off. You know, if the Earth was about nine days behind, it would have hit the Earth and it would have completely destroyed our electrical system. Okay? These things happen. It's only by the grace of God that stuff doesn't happen. Right. So, you know, it's it's just one of those things where, you know, you, you kind of want real tangible stuff. You know, and, and what we're going to talk about today, uh, this one, hopefully it's going to be a lot more encouraging. Right. It, it's, it's going to be about walking by faith and not by sight, believing what God has to say and allowing it to, 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 to sink deep inside of us so that it changes us from the inside out. Because that's really what it's all about. Okay? Let me get my, my spectacles here. I like this because I get to be one of those disapproving old men, you know, looking down, <laughs> rich in my glasses. You know? It's kind of fun. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Mike Ferguson alluded to this one, and I, I'm glad he step back. He was like, I think I'm going to step on somebody's toes. And he was. And I think, I think he realized it. You know, you can't tell by looking at me, but um, I was, uh, I played football and I was a wide receiver. <laughs> yeah, me. Um, I used to be skinny and fast. And it's like, kind of like one of those guys when, when, when you're a receiver, you hear the footsteps when you're catching the ball. And you know, I mean, you know where you're going to get hit. I don't know if he had kind of had that suspicion. He was like, I think I'm going to step on somebody's toes. And if I'm feeling a little bit wired, I think I had what Davis had last night. He was bouncing like, like on a pogo stick up here last night. So <laughs> that coffee's strong. Um, <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 20. So the theme is trust, right? Trusting in the Lord, having faith. The things of the Old Testament, as was talked about earlier today, are, are designed to be visual 
for us to understand the spiritual realities of, of things that take place. You know, for example, you take uh, when, when the tabernacle was dedicated in Exodus, and you take when the temple was dedicated in 2 Samuel, and, and the cloud came in and filled, the glory of the Lord came and entered those buildings, and it forced everything else out. You know, why did that happen both times that took place? It's, it's for us to understand what takes place when we become Christians. Yes. Okay? The glory of God enters you. And that's the, that's the way that God decided to let us know. So the next time you see someone get immersed, recognize that that is what's taking place at that moment. The glory of God is entering that individual. And it's, and it's spiritual. It's by faith. It doesn't mean that it's not real. A lot of times people have a tendency to think that spiritual things aren't real. They're symbolic. No, they're, they're absolutely real. As a matter of fact, they're more real than the physical realm. Because those spiritual things are the things that are going to last forever. These physical things are going to burn. So that's why God constantly tells us to walk by faith, not by sight, to recognize the spiritual realities and things so that we can put our faith, trust, and hope in the things that are going to endure and that are going to be permanent. See, So what I want to talk about today is something very important. Identity. How God has defined you. What type of identity he has given you. And that whatever God says, you can trust. So, we're going to talk about Jehoshaphat. Just a little bit. And, and the reason we're going to talk about Jehoshaphat is because what Jehoshaphat went through doesn't make sense by the flesh. So, you know, we're, we're looking at military conflict in, in the world today and, 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 and kind of apply what God tells Jehoshaphat to do. Imagine if you were in the military today and you were surrounded by a greater force, you know, kind of like what's happening this very day. And this be the, the way they prepare. It doesn't make sense. Okay? So, <clears throat> Chapter 20, verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Moonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord, and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it, have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. So think about the picture here. A great multitude is coming against Jerusalem and Judah, coming to, to destroy who they are, coming to destroy the temple where God had chosen to set his name. And the prayer that Jehoshaphat made here is phenomenal. He's calling attention to who God is and what he has done and what he has promised. See, when, when God answers, and, and, and a lot of you probably know the, the, the way this story uh, kind of ends here, 
These are the types of prayers that God really digs. God likes being reminded of who he is. God loves for us to remember what his promises are and what he has promised to do for his people. And he is just fine with you reminding him this is what you said you'd do. You know why God's okay with it? Because as we've been talking about, he's faithful. It's only unfaithful people that don't like being reminded of what they said. <laughs> but you said you're going to do this. No, I didn't. Or you misunderstood. Or now's not a good time. I'll do it later. God's not like any of that, is he? God keeps his promise. As a matter of fact, there's a word in, in Hebrew, and you might see it, I know the New American Standard, uh, it's in Psalms a lot, it's uh, loving kindness. Okay, so loving kindness is forever. That, that is a Hebrew word that actually has no translation in English. And so they've created, you know, kind of said loving kindness, makes sense? Uh, the, the word, it's one of those good Hebrew words, it's a chesed. You know, it's got that guttural on the front end of it. And, and it's actually more of a concept. What it actually means is covenant faithfulness. When God says something and he promises something, he has to keep it. He absolutely will keep it. He cannot deny himself. See, everything Jehoshaphat said here was right. He's drawing God's attention to it. See, the nation of, of, of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem, could not be defeated if his people were faithful. It was destroyed twice. 586 and 70 AD. Was it because they were faithful they were destroyed? In 586, it's because they had idols, physical idols in the temple. In 70 AD, it was because they crucified the Lord of glory 40 years earlier. So what about the New Jerusalem? Where we dwell? Will that ever be overcome? We were talking about, I can't remember who I was talking to about it. I had some good conversations today. The way it's going to look when it's all coming to an end, is that the church is going to be destroyed. The nations are going to come up on the broad plain of the earth. They're going to surround the camp of the saints. And man, it looks like it's lights out for them. Matter of fact, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, they're going to be screaming out peace and safety. Why would the world be screaming out peace and safety? Because the ones who torment them with the truth of God are about to be extinguished. We are a threat as long as we carry the, the spirit of God in us and live by his ways. We are a threat to a lost and dying world that's, that's, that's in, in open, hostile rebellion to God. Remember the two witnesses in Revelation when they died? The ones that tormented them with the testimony of Christ? They rejoiced. They sent presents to each other. But what's going to happen? Recognize, the reason God wrote the book of Revelation, one of the main reasons, was to encourage his people, no matter how bad it gets, we win. We win. Through him, we win. So it's going to look horrible, it's going to look terrible, but then fire's going to come down from heaven and consume all of them. We are in the safest place we could possibly be. No matter how dangerous things get, we are in the safest place we could possibly be. See, so Jehoshaphat's saying this prayer, and it's, and it's amazing. You know, and, and they've got the wives, the, the infants, their little ones. And then notice verse 14. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite, sons of Asaph. And he said, listen. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. 
Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear. What's the opposite of trust? Fear, right? As we've talked about. So do not fear. Trust. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For this battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up again, uh, by the ascendances, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. You know, in the book of Joel, chapter 2 and 3, not chapter 3, this battle is actually used as a type of the second coming and the final battle. Where's our victory going to come from? It's not by us taking up arms. It's divine and it's complete. But think about this from an army's perspective. I mean, imagine that taking place today. You know, an army's outnumbered and they say, tell you what, we're, uh, we're going to lay down our weapons and we're going to let, you know, God fight for us. And you call crazy. Insane. That makes no sense. That makes no sense by the flesh, does it? Oh, we got to create a battle plan. we gotta, we got to uh, create some sort of subterfuge and, and, and outflank them and, and do this and do that and, and, and try to, you know, have better tactics than that. This is the best tactic you can have. Let God do it. They had to walk by faith, didn't they? They had to trust in what God was telling them. And so, look at their example. Look, look what they did in verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites and the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. They rose up early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he has consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang uh, to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. There's that loving kindness. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the son of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished, the inhabitants of Seir helped to destroy one another. They helped to destroy one another. When Judah came uh, to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take the spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuables, uh, valuable things. They took them for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because it was so much. Power of the flesh didn't do that. The power of faith did that. Power of trust did that. Believing what God said, even though it was contrary to physical reality. That is what God is looking for. God is going to ask us to do some things. He does ask us to do things that are kind of crazy on the surface. He asks us to walk by things that we can't see. He asks us to sacrifice everything that we have for someone that we've never seen or talked to. This is why it's so important to prove the Bible is the Word of God on the front end, objectively, so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book is real, that it's true. Because God's going to ask us to do things that we can't prove. And we're going to have to lean back on that proof to be able to, with conviction, take those steps. Uh, in, in two weeks, we're having our family camp. 
I'm actually, um, if, if all that stuff's going to be on Facebook. Um, I'd encourage you to listen to these messages. Our theme is, is uh, uh, defending your faith in a modern world. You know, we're going to be going through some of these things that sometimes it's hard for Christians to deal with. Questions that kind of throw our, throw our heads for a little like, why does God allow the innocent to suffer in those types of things? But one of the things I'm going to be talking about are the extra-biblical proofs that prove the Bible to be the Word of God. Stuff outside the Scripture that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book is 100% verifiable. To build your faith on a solid rock that will not be moved. This battle shows us that God will give us the victory if we trust Him. So, let's go to Romans 4. I want to make application now to us in the New Covenant. That's toasty back there. Romans chapter 4. One of my favorites. Paul's writing about Abraham being the father of the faith here. And in verse 16, he says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. In the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. <clears throat> it's hard sometimes to believe what God says. I'll admit that. I think sometimes we're so afraid to talk honestly about things that we kind of go through the motions sometimes. Being afraid to be thought unfaithful or questioning or heretical. I'm a skeptic by nature. I don't believe things very easily. I don't, and I'm, I also have a healthy dose of rebellion. The best Christians are rebellious. I firmly believe that. If you do something because someone tells you to do it, you're, you're a lemming. If, if, if you're a Christian because it's how you were raised and you never questioned it, you don't have real biblical faith. You've got to go back and build that foundation for yourself. Parents, one, one of the most important parent, things parents you can do is help your kids build their own faith. And sometimes that is super uncomfortable. But they can't continue to live by your faith. They have to build their own. Man, when, when, when my son Joel, if you've ever met Joel, if, that kid is way smarter than me. I mean, he is absolutely one of the most brilliant people I have ever met. And when he was about 13 years old, he started asking questions that were so far beyond his ability to even understand that when I tried to explain the answers to him, I couldn't formulate the answers well enough for him to be able to grab hold of them. Because the questions were so far beyond him and his ability. And so you know what I said? I said... I can't answer that, but what I need you to do is I need you to trust me for about one or two more years until your brain catches up. And you know what he did? He just went and researched everything himself. And he answered his own questions. And if, you, if, you, if you've met him, I, I don't know if I've met a more convicted young man in my life. Because he's proven it to himself. And guess what? He doesn't believe everything I believe. We have very interesting conversations. You know how uncomfortable that was for me? 
When he's 13 years old, questioning the existence of, not necessarily the existence of God, but kind of, but, you know, questioning, you know, I don't know if I believe the Bible's word of God, what about evolution? He's asking, you know, these questions that everybody kind of asks. And I'm sweating, I'm scared inside. But he went after it. We encouraged it. You know, he can't be, you know, well, another example, my, my daughter Leah, she, she, she worked at Chick-fil-A down in uh, Florida when we lived there. And um, this is not a judgmental statement, please, but this is what our family does. We don't, we don't do Halloween, we've never done Halloween. Love Christmas, we do Christmas. So, you know, we do that kind of stuff, but you know, we've never really done Halloween. And so they were all dressing up for Halloween. And Leah was an adult at this time, I think. I think she was maybe maybe 17, maybe 18. I can't remember. And so when they asked her to dress up, she goes, Oh no, my family doesn't celebrate Halloween. I said, hold on a second. I said, Do you celebrate Halloween? No. Do you want to? She said, No, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to do that. So they don't hide behind us. If you don't agree with it, you speak up. She's like, yeah, that's right. So she's been like really vocal ever since then. She's like, that's my faith. That's my conviction. She goes for it. See? Back to the, the main point here. It's hard to believe sometimes what God says. I'll admit that. Because when I look at the scripture and I see, you know, who he says I am, there's been times in the past I haven't seen that play out in reality. And sometimes it's easy to think this stuff just isn't true. Maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. I don't I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I don't think I'm the only one in this room that has thought that. You want to know one of the passages that completely floored me and changed my mind? This one. He calls into being that which doesn't exist. Do you want proof? I know you can't do it right this moment, but look outside. To kind of quote Abraham, every place the sole of your foot treads did not exist before God said it. That's your proof. All you have to do is look at physical creation and you can find out that God calls into being that does not exist. Why does he put this kind of stuff in here? Let's keep reading. Verse 18, in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That's why Abraham's so awesome. He knew that God called into being the things which did not exist. He knew that God was faithful and whatever he promised, he was able to deliver. He told him he's going to be a father of many nations. Through Isaac, your descendants will be blessed or will be named. Then he tells him to go kill Isaac. You know what the scripture says? He arose early the next morning. He didn't sit around twiddling his thumbs. And he reasoned within himself that God was going to resurrect him from the dead, even though he's never seen it and it would never happen before. Just like Jehoshaphat. That advice made no sense. But he did it. And one of the greatest events of the Old Testament happened. But what about you? Well, go a couple chapters over, Romans chapter 6. Now, here's something that's interesting. 
The power of identity. The wall's given us a really good example. I'm not saying good as in like good moral example, but look at this example. This illustrates something. Somebody can change their identities, believe there's something else that they're not, and they'll change everything about themselves. They'll change their name, they'll change the way they dress, they'll change the way they identify, they'll change everything because of the belief they have inside their mind. Everything. All encompassing complete change. That's the power of identity. As a man thinks within himself, so is he. That is a divine principle. I'm not saying that what they're doing is divine. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying the power of that concept is divine. That's what I'm saying. How does God define you? Romans chapter 6. I mean, we, we know verses 1 through 7. I mean, hey, you've, you've died to sin. You've been buried with Christ, risen to walk in newness of life. And then in verse 8, he describes what that means. So look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So it's saying that Jesus died, never to die again. He died to sin once for all, so that the life that he lives, he now lives to God. To that, we might just say, good for Jesus. Yay, Jesus, good job. We're happy for you, buddy. I'm not being sacrilegious here. Trust me, we'll connect this stop. It's, but... What, what, what a lot of people have a tendency to think is that this happens in the sweet by and by. In the next life for us, it means nothing for us now. It's like, okay, Jesus was this great example. He did these things. This is what happened to him. This is what we have to look forward to. No. Look at the next verse. Even so, consider in your mind, think of yourself, by faith, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Your immersion is a change of identity. Your immersion into Christ is a change of definition of who you are. You're no longer the same person. That person literally, spiritually died. That's not just some fuzzy language that God puts in there. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a legit, for real act. Yes. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. You have been crucified with Christ. You have been born again by the water and the Spirit. You're not the same person. And it's a lie from the pit of hell to say that a Christian is a sinner saved by grace. You are not a Romans 7 individual. What do I mean by a Romans 7 individual? The things you want to do, you don't do. The things you don't want to do, you do. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of his death? That's not you. But here's the rub. Here's the problem. You look back over your shoulder at today, yesterday, the day before, maybe five minutes ago. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I don't feel devastated. I look back over my shoulder and that's not the history that I see. A lot of us probably have heard of the term cognitive dissonance before. Where you cannot hold two competing thoughts in your mind at the same time. You cannot hold, and, and what, what's amazing is that the Christian churches and churches of Christ live in cognitive dissonance. They do. Give you an example. It's a guy I used to look up to quite a bit. He, he was really big on using the word saint. You know what I'm talking about. Saint. 
he had a hat with his name on it, Saint So and So. Patron saint of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and a lot of these other guys, you know, they were they were out there talking about this. Hey, we're saints, we're saints. And so when all the all the big hubbub, I don't know, some some Yahoo from Michigan put out a tape on sinless perfection and caused a lot of problems, man. I mean, caused a lot, caused a lot of problems. <laughs> but I'm glad you did. Things were kind of too calm, man, and you just like. You didn't stir the pot, you blew the pot up. <laughs> Shards everywhere. Because I, I remember that guy, when he said, you gotta listen to this tape, this guy's a heretic. I listen to the tape, I'm like, man, that stuff's pretty good. I wanna meet this guy. So I, I go and I, I go to a place called Salford. Uh, there, was a, there was a men's meeting there. And, and Steve, Steve was there, and man, he was getting hammered that weekend. I mean, they, they were like lining up with baseball bats, trying to, trying to knock his head off. And so I'm like, hey, man, I want to meet this guy. And I, he comes in, he's like, who are you? Why do you want to talk to me? And I'm like, I heard that tape you did. It was fantastic. And he kind of warmed up after that. And a little bit later, we went to Bellaries together, spent three weeks together. It was pretty fun. But you want to know what the, when, when all this, this, this turmoil came about about walking in the footsteps of Christ, you want to know what the final analysis was by the Christian church, the churches of Christ? We are saints who sin. That's cognitive dissonance. You can't hold those two thoughts in your head at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that Christians can't sin. You absolutely can if you choose to. Stop what I'm saying. I'm saying that's not God's plan for you. That's not why he saved you. He saved you to overcome that mess. And to walk in his footsteps. To renew your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That was just good and acceptable and perfect. Yeah, I just don't. I don't see that in my life. Maybe you know. Maybe, maybe you think that. And maybe you have thought that in the past. What are you going to do about that? You're going to believe the definition that God gives you? Or are you going to believe what you see with your physical eyes? That's the choice that the Christian has. That's the choice that every person who has chosen to live by faith, even in the Old Testament, had. That's the choice that Jehoshaphat had. That's the choice that Abraham had. My descendants are going to be like the same of the seashore. Have you seen me? I'm 100 years old. My, wife, my wife's womb is dead. It's closed up. You know what he said? This is going to be awesome. I'm going to have kids. They're going to come from me and Sarah. I'm going to be the father of many nations. Through my seed, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. He did not waver in unbelief for one moment. He believed God's definition of him. You know what God did? He changed the dude's name. Abraham, father of many. Look. God has changed your definition when you come into Christ. Do you want to know what your new definition is? Consider yourself as the resurrected Christ. Now let me define what I mean by that. You are not the resurrected Christ. You are not God in the flesh. You are not any of that. What I'm saying is you are the resurrected Christ in the same sense that Christ was dead to sin and alive to God. That's all I mean by that. I've been accused of some really weird things. <laughs> and I've learned to really hedge my bets on stuff and you know, clarify things. That is a crazy definition, even that. You are to consider yourself the same as the resurrected Christ when he resurrected from the grave, alive to God and dead to sin. That's your identity now. 
You know what that's going to do when you get that deep down inside you as a part of who you are? It's, it's not just something you can tell yourself once. It's something you have to reinforce, reinforce. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that when we look in this mirror of the word, what do you see when you look in a mirror? You see you, your definition. You know what he says you see when you look in the mirror of the word in 2 Corinthians 3.18? You see the glory of the Lord. His character. Let's uh, go to Colossians chapter 3. Why not? I was thinking Ephesians 4 or 5 or Colossians 3. Let's go to Colossians 3. Verse 5. Therefore, consider... We read that word earlier, didn't we? Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now think about this. Imagine if you actually considered yourself dead to temptation. What that would look like. You know, when, when Steve and I went to Belarus for the first time, we had some interesting fellows along the ride with us. And, and you know, we got, we got in trouble when we were over there. You know, guys, you know, jumping up in Steve's face and my face, putting their fingers in our chest and stuff like that. It was, it was fun. Steve and I laughed and had a good time with that. Um, so one of the examples I gave when I was preaching out of Romans 6 was, you know, imagine, you know, you take somebody that's an alcoholic. You know, man, and they could never say no to a drink. Ever. They die. And you go into the you go into the morgue, pull that that corpse out, you know, nice and cold. And you take their favorite drink, maybe it's a maybe it's a can of Bud, you know. And you you bring that cold can of Bud, put it right in front of their face, you know, let them see it, you know. You pop it open, you know, let them let them smell it. Maybe pour it into a glass for them. What kind of reaction do you think you're going to get out of that person? You know what the Russian said? Nothing. He's not going to do anything. And I asked why. And they said, he's dead. <laughs> this is not hard to understand. <laughs> Imagine if you had that kind of concept buried deep in your inner man. That when these temptations came, you were dead to them. The reason you're dead to them is because you've been resurrected from the dead. Because you are a temple of the living God. Think of all of the ways that God is working to change our definition. You're a temple. You're a saint. You're a son. You're, you're a joint heir with Christ. All of these ways that God is changing the way you think about things. Dead to sin, alive to God. Keep going here. Uh, let's go down to verse 8. But now uh, you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on a new self, who is being renewed uh, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created them. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Now look at verse 12. That's all the negative stuff you put aside. Look at this positive stuff. This is your definition. This isn't who you can be. Listen, this is not who you can be. This is who you are. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, put on that heart of compassion. Why put it on? Because it's already yours. You don't have to go get it. It already belongs to you. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love. And literally in the Greek, it's the uniting bond of perfection. It's not the perfect bond of unity, as the New American Standard says. It's the uniting bond of perfection. You want to be complete, perfect in Christ? Love like he did. 
If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, he says, right? That's the key. Believing this definition. Trusting in God. Takes all that stuff I talked about this morning. And it turns it from being this thing that keeps you up at night, scared of your own shadow. And it puts it into perspective that this is another thing you get to overcome through the power of him who dwells in you. We are a mighty resurrected army. I think sometimes in our, in our little circles of fellowship, we hear that kind of stuff so often that it kind of becomes cliche and it kind of just bounces off the front of our head and falls onto the ground. Book of Romans. I'm going to leave you with this. Actually, let, I, I know I'll close my Bible. One more thing. Romans 8. Sorry. I, 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 I got to do this. This is like two minutes. You're fine. Okay. Thanks. Maybe a little bit more than two minutes, huh? <laughs> You're fine. Hey. All right. Book of Romans, uh, my favorite book in the New Testament. Romans is, is like a theological treatise in a lot of ways. So many deep thoughts. And people like to tear it apart as like this textbook, as this, as this you know, incredible teaching, which it is. But I want you to understand in the immediate context when Paul wrote this, why he wrote it. Okay? When, when you go to Romans chapter 16 and you see all those names there, all these people that are listed, and Paul is, is reaching out to them and he's, he's, he's you know, talking about how amazing they are, greet them, these types of things. Book of Romans was written in 58 AD. Anybody know what happened six years later? The persecution of Nero started. Rome burned. Nero blamed the Christians. If you read what Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, who was alive at that time, what he wrote about it, he talked about the Christians and what happened to them. He said they were sown inside of animal skins and thrown to the wild beasts. They were crucified. They were used as lamps for garden parties and for illuminating the streets. So the people you read about at the end of Romans 16, many of them, if they stay faithful, in six years, we're going to meet that faith. Think of that while we read Romans 8. I'm going to hopscotch through here. Verse 18. For I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed into us. It's not, you know, to us. That's that word ice. The glory is going to be revealed into us. We are actually the recipients of the glory. And when it's revealed, when we are transformed into the likeness of Christ, as the New Testament promises, it's going to wipe away every single issue that we've ever had in this life. And it's not even going to be worthy to be compared. Verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not some mantra that people say to them. We know God causes all things to work together for good for me. He's preparing them to die and letting them know if you, with whatever you're about to go through, recognize that this is all going to be for good. Most people wouldn't think being tortured and killed is good. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And the things he's talking about there is that whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The promise that God made you in predestination is not that he predestined people to be saved, but that all Christians are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Glorified. 
But we've got to go through the same process that Jesus went through to get there. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? This is something really good to know in light of the present distress, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely uh, with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Look at this passage. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? These are not just words. These are what they were going to experience. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's you. That's not some future self. That's you now. You drive that deep down inside. <clears throat> Let that become part of who you are from the inside out. Because that's who God has already made you to be. Thanks.